and we're going to pull up to the table and feast on God's Word together. I hope you will open your Bible to Romans 8. Uh, Join me there in Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's one probably in the pew not too far away from you. And if you don't know where Romans 8 is, the page number in the pew Bible is written in the order of service. You also would find an outline for the sermon on the back of the worship folder that may help you to follow along this morning in our time together in God's Word in Romans 8. I'm sure by now that many of you have heard the story of Joe and Irma Garcia, high school sweethearts, married for 24 years, four kids. Irma was one of two fourth grade teachers who was killed in the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, as she was shielding her students from the killer. That was on a Tuesday a couple of weeks ago. Two days later, on Thursday, that Thursday, her husband Joe put some flowers at a memorial site for the victims, came home, sat down at the kitchen table, surrounded by family, and just a few minutes later collapsed and could not be revived. Joe was just 50 years old. Some of the news reports I saw said he died of a heart attack. Others said that it diagnosed it as stress-induced cardiomyopathy, what ordinary folks call dying of a broken heart. That's some extraordinary suffering. Except I know that many of you, I'm looking at you, I know that many of you have endured, are enduring some exceptional suffering. Weeks in the hospital, Months of fighting cancer, years of disability, decades. Losing a spouse before you got to enjoy retirement. Losing a child before you got to paint the nursery. Thankfully, not everyone who has a broken heart dies from it. This morning, we're looking at one of the most important passages in all of Scripture for understanding why this life hurts so much and yet why we can have hope in Christ. Romans 8, 18 to 30 is our text, but I'm going to back up and read from verse 14, where we were last week. Verse 14, and then on from there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Oh, you want to keep going, don't you? All right, next next week. Now, uh, one thread through this text, of course, is groaning. You heard that three times. And that, that we tend to focus on that, right? That's, that's where we are. That's, that's right in the gut. But just as clear is the hope of glory all through this. So this morning, here's the sermon in a sentence. You can get it all from here. Hope in God who will make all our groanings give way to far greater glory. We'll take these two paragraphs here, 18 to 30, two paragraphs in four parts. So first, all creation groans. Creation under the curse longs for its freedom in our final redemption. So verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, the glory that is yet to come. Present suffering, future glory. Now, remember how we connected this to our identity as heirs last week, H-E-I-R-S. If you were on your way to inherit a great fortune, say $100 million, you wouldn't be upset by having a flat tire or losing your wallet with 25 bucks in it. Okay, but our present sufferings can be so much, much harder than a flat tire. Does that way of framing our suffering really work? Does it really help? Paul doesn't take any time to defend this bold claim that present sufferings are not worth comparing, so far outweighed by future glory. I think it's because he expects believers like us to understand the immensity, the audacity of what he's already told us. If you are children of God, then you are heirs of God, not of a hundred million dollars, which if you stop to think about it, the reason why that sounds so great to us is we think it would solve all of our problems. It wouldn't. Think it would give us everything we desire. It wouldn't. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is far better. One day, as heirs of God, you stand to receive unending life in the kingdom of God, the whole world, every square inch, under God's rightful rule, a new world order that brings harmony and beauty, peace and security, flourishing and fullness that... Any other king or politician can only dream of. It's, all, it's wishful thinking for anyone else. Jesus delivers. 
life from God, life in God, life with God, that will be glory. Thank you. Anybody else looking forward to it? Yeah, okay. All right. um, Paul says the whole creation is looking forward to it. So verse 19, again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, note two key phrases describing all of creation. 20, it was subjected to futility. And then 21, is now in bondage to corruption with the expectation, of course, that one day it will be set free. Now, that, that corruption, bondage to corruption, that's the, that's the brokenness, that's the disintegration, that's descending into ruin of our world. And it is, it is inescapable. It is a bondage. Whether you want to talk about the uh, massive uh, Hurricane Agatha slamming against the southern Mexico coast, causing landslides, destruction, or at the microscopic level, a, a missing chromosome in your child, and doctors are coming to you telling you uh, there's a syndrome that you've never heard of before. And then we're like, what? we look at the news, we look at our, our, our frailty of our bodies, and we say, why don't things just work like they're supposed to? Why are, why are things always breaking down, falling apart? Creation is in bondage to corruption because it was subjected to futility. That, that word translated there as futility is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes. If you didn't follow me there, just Ecclesiastes, you know that. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Not vain like proud, vain like empty. In other words, as the Bible also says, life is uh, uh, like a mist, like a, a vapor. It appears for a moment, and then, and then it's gone before you can, you couldn't get your hands around it. It's, it's there and gone. And so that way that life is always feels like it leads us then next to the, the sense that, like, whatever we do, life is, is pointless. Like we can't get anywhere. We can't build anything that doesn't fall apart. We can't make anything that won't soon be outdated or outmoded and Everything we do feels useless, pointless. Our lives are like the flower that blossoms one day beautifully, and then the next, the petals curl and fall to the ground. Futility. And it says here, subjected, one who subjected it to futility. Who, who or what subjected all creation to this futility? Well, Genesis 1 to 3, creation goes from thriving under God's blessing to the curse that God himself put on his own world because of human sin. And folks, that's where all the pain comes from, all the pain, all the pain in our work as represented there by the invasive weeds in the garden. I mean, just, just remind yourself this when you're pulling those weeds and the, you just can't get the root out. And like, how did they get there? How, why do they grow fast, faster than the grass? Well, all the pain in our families as represented by the agony of giving birth, the pains in our bodies, all, and all that pain, understand, is besides the outright human evils of unprovoked wars, organized crime, abuse and exploitation by 
mega corporations and the schoolyard bully. The very fact that we have natural disasters and diseases reminds us that this world is profoundly disordered. It is deeply broken. But, but listen, listen, it's groanings. These groanings are not the last gasp on the way to death. These present sufferings, verse 22 says, are the pains of childbirth. It means there will be new life on the other side of this pain. there's, There's hope even there. When will creation be set free? This is important. Just as creation's bondage to corruption came in the wake of human sin, its freedom is found in our final redemption. So, we're not making the human beings, we're not making ourselves the star of the story. Well, it all hinges on us, but, but this is how God put the story together. This really ultimately is about Him showing His power, might, mercy, and grace, not in making, you know, amazing creatures, but in displaying His mercy and grace in redemption, and the story hinges on our redemption. It hinges, of course, at the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb, but it also turns on our sin and our salvation, final salvation, our final redemption. We don't know exactly when that will be, but there will be a final judgment, that definitive statement of who is with God and who is against God, who are those who are condemned in their sin, those who will be redeemed through faith in Christ, finally and forever, between those who are defeated and banished from the kingdom, those who are welcomed in to reign victorious in the kingdom of God with their king and their savior. See, the end of the world as we know it is just a new beginning for the redeemed. And with us believers, a new beginning for the whole of creation. Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. That's what all creation is longing for. That's what it's groaning to get to. Do we feel the same way? Yeah, and that's what it says. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is part two. We groan. We groan. We endure with eager anticipation of the full experience of our salvation. Now, you didn't need Paul or me to tell you that you groan. We groan. Uh, you, you, you know this, even if you're feeling particularly good, you're, you're, not, you're on a good streak of health and uh, financial stability. You, you just look at our weekly list of prayer requests. There have been recent surgeries for hip replacements and carpal tunnel and procedures for kidney stones and long-term conditions like multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's and I could go on and on. We know what we're groaning about. What are we waiting for? What are we, what are we eager to get to? Pay attention to the way Paul puts it specifically here. We're waiting for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. 
And if you were with us last week, you're like, you're, you might be scratching your heads. Well, wait a minute. I thought last, the paragraph before, he said, we are children of God. We are sons of God. We are heirs. Uh, we, were, we are adopted, verse 15. And in redemption, are, are we not redeemed now? Well, part of the clue to answering the now or later question is in that earlier phrase, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits is just the, the very beginning of the harvested crop. And if you're, think about it, if you're a farmer working all year toward that end, I mean, that, that's, that's what you're waiting for, that's what you're eagerly waiting for, is the harvest. And yet the first fruits are just the beginning of an even greater bounty. So Paul uses a very similar kind of analogy um, metaphor in other passages. He refers to the Holy Spirit, uh, depending on your English translation, as a deposit or a down payment or a guarantee. And you think, well, that's, those aren't all the same thing. But, well, think about how that works together. You think in terms of buying a house. Uh, you, you may be able to afford the regular ongoing monthly payments, but the bank requires, typically, uh, a significant down payment, much larger than the regular payments, and yet even as large as that is, it's still only a fraction of the whole mortgage. So that, that down payment has to be big enough to show that you are serious uh, about buying this house, but, it's, but it's, it's only a part, but it's a part that guarantees that the rest is coming. So here you go. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. It is the first fruits of a greater harvest. It's the down payment toward, toward all the rest. God has, if you're, this is the now and later thing. You, you are a believer. You are a son, a child, an heir. Now you have the Spirit now. This is the first fruits of your salvation, the first fruits of the Spirit. You have it now. It shows your salvation is real. And at the very same time, it shows you that there's so much more to come. There's so much more to come. Is, isn't that good? Are you, are you, is everybody okay with the salvation they have right now? Do you have some, some more? Would you like some more? There's more to come. And that's what the Spirit points us to. If you're a believer, you have his new life in your heart and in your mind, your inner being now, but one day your body will be completely made new as well. The redemption of your bodies. Or Philippians 3.21 says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the redemption of our bodies. That's when you and I will be set, you and I will be set free from our bondage to corruption. Our aches and our pains and our weariness and our memory loss. It'll be gone from groaning to glory. Yeah, there's some groanings out there and some glory looking for. What's interesting, I think, is the pairing of these two words, adoption and redemption. Both of these words, well, you know, adoption pictures, uh, a child brought into a new family. Redemption, don't forget, uh, pictures a slave brought under a new master. We, we think, of course, as part of that is paying the price uh, to set someone free, but redemption also has that idea of uh, a slave being brought under a new master. Both adoption, redemption, have the idea with being newly claimed or taken into a new place to belong. Sometimes, maybe you've heard this, uh, some families who have adopted will talk about the day when it was finalized in court or that day when they brought the child home as part of their family for the first time, and it's called, do you know what the day is called? 
gotcha day. Have you heard that? Right? So by faith, we now belong to Jesus. We stand to inherit the kingdom with him. We even bear his name. But folks, we're still waiting for gotcha day. We're still waiting for that day. When God claims us as his own, takes us into his home to be at home with him, when we will belong to him, those of us who belong to him now, but we will belong to him like we've never known it before. Gotcha day. That's what we've been looking forward to ever since we trusted Christ for verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. I mean, we were saved with that expectation, with that longing and that desire. This is where we're headed. But it's still just our hope because we don't have it yet. But verse 25 says we wait for it with patience. I don't know about you, but does this sound like waiting with patience to you? Groaning inwardly, waiting eagerly? Like he says in verse 23? To me, I I, I picture anticipation as impatience, right? You know, you're you're sitting there, you're waiting, you're looking at your watch, you're uh, drumming your fingers, you're like, come on, let's go. Uh, I, I, I picture anticipation as impatience. Patience is like, yeah, I got all the time in the world. I'll just, you know, I'm not worried if the doctor's late. I'll just, you know, scroll on my phone. That, that patience is, doesn't care. That's not, that's not the combination we have here. We have groaning inwardly, waiting eagerly, and yet waiting with patience. And the word here has not just patience as in, meh, sooner, later, doesn't matter. It's an idea of endurance, of carrying on, of perseverance, of pressing on as you wait. So put it all together. The waiting we're talking about is not just killing time, waiting for Jesus to come back, waiting for the kingdom. We're not just killing time, it's waiting through the sufferings of this present time. It's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit that our expectations are heightened and our hope is certain. It's because there is so much more that we were saved for, so much that is yet to come that we must wait with patient endurance, perseverance. Don't stop waiting. Don't stop holding on. Don't stop groaning inwardly and waiting eagerly. But how do we do that? Who has the strength for that? Well, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is part three. The Spirit groans. All creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans. Not knowing God's plan in our pain, we are helped by the Spirit's prayers. Last week I read a hymn, a couple verses from a hymn by Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor from the early 1800s, and he's got a lot of good quotes. Another one that I remember of his that I often think about is, uh, he said, you wish to humble a man? Ask him about his prayer life. I probably remember that quotation because it humbles me. Praying is not easy for a number of reasons. I mean, apparently it wasn't easy in the 18, early 1800s, and it feels like it's even harder today, right? We're, we're so busy, and we, have, and we have the technology to fill every waking moment with music and podcasts. And I mean, Netflix, you finish one episode, and next episode starting in three 
two, one. I, what, can, I, what can I do? I, I mean, it, next episode, here we go. On top of that, maybe we feel like we don't have much to say in prayer. Or as one author puts it, we get bored because we seem to say the same old things about the same old things in prayer. And so why, why bother? So we don't pray. I think Paul has something more specific in mind here. Remember the context. It's not knowing, excuse me, it's about not knowing what to pray for as we endure suffering. You might think, yeah, I'm, I'm just, it hurts so bad, I, I just can't pray right now. That, that might be part of what Paul is getting at. Those moments where you're just, I'm at the end of, of my words. I just, the, the, the weight is too great. That's part of it. But compare these last two phrases in, in these two verses. Uh, there's a phrase in, that's part of the problem. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. That's in the problem. And then the next verse in the solution. But the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. So I think there's a connection there according to the will of God. That's, what, that's how we don't, know, uh, we don't know what to pray for. Um, so to paraphrase, maybe this is to, uh, more helpful. We don't know what to pray for in the midst of our pain because we don't know God's will, His plan for us in our sufferings. I think many of us have found us in, in this kind of position where, where we're, we're hurting we're struggling to see, like, how does all this stuff that's happening in my life now make any sense? It doesn't. It just, it's, it's, things are broken. They're falling apart. It doesn't make sense. It hurts. And here I am, God, what are, what are you going to do about it? And you get, you try to pray, but you get stuck. You get stuck praying something like, well, uh, should I pray for healing? Or should I pray for the grace to live with the pain? Or should I pray for specific guidance? The, the, God, tell me the next step to take. Or should I be praying for just the faith to trust you as you lead me in the dark path, that, that, the place I can't see, when the next step is unclear? So many times, I'm, you, you've been here, right? So many times it, comes, it feels like it comes down to this. God, I know you can work a miracle right here and right now. I believe you can do anything. You've been so good to me already. I, I've seen an, you answer my prayers. But I also know that life won't be perfect until Jesus returns. I, I know this world, that, this, that my body is profoundly broken. I don't expect that you will make everything right uh, until final redemption. If I knew your will, if I knew your plan for how you're going to work all this together, then that's what I'd ask for. But I, I don't. I don't even know what to ask for. So I'm just, here I am, groaning. All creation groans. We groan. And sometimes that's all we can do. But remember, Keep reading this passage, and I think you'll see it more clearly. That groaning is not just moaning in our pain. It is how we are waiting eagerly. It can sound like, How long, O Lord? Or, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And sometimes it just sounds like, 
weeping and sobbing or silence. And that's when the Spirit groans with you and prays for you. The same Spirit by whom we saw last week, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, is the Spirit who groans with us and for us when we have no words. It says here, He intercedes. That is, He appeals to the Father on your behalf. What what better intercessor can you have? The He knows exactly what God wants. He knows exactly what you need. Maybe not what you would have asked for, but you didn't know what to ask for. The Spirit knows God's will when you don't. And those verses we've just covered here in these prayers, verses 26, 27, our groanings, the Spirit praying for us, these talk about what we don't know, Turn the corner, 28 to 30, talk about what we do know. 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory. Brothers and sisters, you're going to get there. Now, this is the last part, part four. The glory to be revealed. Knowing God's good purpose will not fail. We have hope in every situation. Now, before you consider filing charges of pastoral malpractice for attempting to cover these three titanic verses in the last part of a sermon. We'll come back to these few next week. Uh, But more importantly for now, I want you to make sure you see how this fits into, how this helps build the case that Paul has been making. What's that? It's, It's back there in 17 and 18. We must suffer with Christ before being glorified with Christ. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us, the glory that will be revealed in us. So even though there's so much that we don't understand about this life, so much that leaves us hurting, groaning, speechless before God, folks, here's what we know. Here's what we know. Grab onto this You're going to need it. Here's your anchor, all you who love God. All things work together for good. Now, you probably knew that already, but here, let me me help you to hold on to that well. This is really important. Paul does not say, all things are good. For Christians, all things are good. Sometimes, Sometimes I hear people taking this powerful, beautiful, humbling truth of God's sovereign will, of his comprehensive providence that should give us hope in the midst of suffering, and then over-interpret the Bible like they're trying to, I don't know, out-theologize Paul, uh, so that when you talk to them, just take a situation, um, you, you, you talk to them uh, about your cancer diagnosis or your miscarriage, and they rather glibly reply, well, I guess if it happened, must be God's will. If it's God's will, 
must be good. So, guess your cancer is good. Guess your miscarriage is good. That's not what Paul said. It's not what the Bible says. Paul does not erase the reality of our pain in present sufferings. We groan. This is not the way the world once was. Praise God is not the way the world will one day be. But for all of us here today, living in between the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, we will suffer. Of course we will. The world is broken. Humanity is in rebellion. Of course we will suffer. So, if you hear a preacher, God forbid, ever on this platform or on TV or anywhere else, if you hear a preacher promising you a life without suffering, oh, because you're a child of God. What? Right in this context. If you're a child of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. God doesn't want that for you. If you hear a preacher promising you a life without suffering because God wouldn't want that for you, that's not the Bible. When this, it's not what this book says. It's not what God says. He says, you will suffer. But get this. You could find yourself in your worst case scenario. I, I don't know. I'm a worst case scenario kind of guy. I mean, what that says about me. You know, like, what's the worst could happen? Well, it, Probably nothing that bad, so we'll be fine, right? Like, let's just imagine the worst. Nah, and it's usually not the worst, but you know. So, okay, it could rain at the party, but we'll be fine. Uh, What's the worst that could happen? Now, that's not the way to handle worst-case scenarios. If you are actually in a worst-case scenario, the the worst that happens, and discover, you you could and you will discover that God's good purpose can play out even there. Consider, you know the story, you know the Old Testament, you know the story of Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. That was pretty bad. Then, on the basis of his integrity, gets thrown into prison. Okay, that's worse. I thought we were worst case scenario already. Got worse. And then, when he gets his seemingly way out, gets forgotten, but he goes from the prison to the palace, and also that, in God's plan, to save God's people from death. And that story, I mean, if that wasn't great, a great enough story, all that just points ahead to Jesus, who humbled himself, who went to the lowest place, who descended even to death on a cross, and yet rose even more spectacularly, more dramatically than Joseph, Joseph's uh, turn to the highest place. When from death on the cross to ascended to the right hand of the Father, and all why to save you and me who are trusting in him by faith. I mean, what looked like a worst case scenario was actually God's plan for good. Now, I think I understand why we come to these pa- this passage and we might be uncomfortable with words like foreknowledge and predestination and certain definitions of calling. But let me ask you this. When you are in your worst case scenario, and I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's terminal cancer. Maybe it's uh, getting Alzheimer's. Having your savings just completely wiped out by uh, 
economic crash or inflation or, you know, um, losing a spouse or a child? What's your worst case scenario? Or maybe you're thinking more broadly, culturally, uh, where your, your worst case scenario is a time when churches are padlocked, when Christians get imprisoned and killed here like they are already around the world. When you are in your worst case scenario, what, what's going to give you hope? Your strength, your wisdom, your convictions, your commitment? Or will we look where Paul is pointing us to, to the supreme wisdom and power and grace of God in his overarching plan and unfailing purpose that he will carry out? Bank on it. Yes, okay, you know, you, yes, you needed to hear the gospel personally. You needed to personally respond in faith to Jesus Christ. But know this, that even that moment was bigger than your decision to accept Jesus. It was not just your will, your plan, and your purpose for your life. This is about God. What he began before the world was made, what he will complete in the world that is coming when the world that we now know, as we now know it, is gone. If God has called you into his purpose, his purpose that is good, his purpose to make you to be like Jesus, not just in holiness, but in glory, in his kingdom. If that's his purpose, he's going to get you there. If you're groaning today, hope in God. That's where your hope is. If you feel, you know, you're, you're pretty good now, but you're afraid of what's around the corner, afraid of Oh, they're talking about recession. You're afraid, you're afraid for our economy. You're afraid for our culture. You're afraid for our country. You're afraid for this community. You're afraid, afraid for your family. Hope in God. Yes, there will be sufferings in this present time. But the end of the story is glory. And for God's people, the end of the story is just the beginning. Just the beginning. Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. I read this with Dee and Laverne on Friday with Brad. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hope in God, who will make all our groanings give way to far greater glory. Is he your hope today? Let's pray. Oh God, I pray this morning. that there is no one here that 
would die of a broken heart, not literally, but would take their brokenness and take their pain and sit alone and collapse apart from you. I pray today that we would, in our groaning, also be waiting eagerly, anticipating, trusting, hoping only in you, our mighty Savior, our good God, our near and dear Holy Spirit. Give us life now, and I pray that the life you give us will be just a taste of the beginning, the ending that is yet to come. We'll thank you again and again as we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.